Welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent, featuring McKinsey leaders and talent experts Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. I'm Lucia Rahili. Today, inclusion in the workplace, why it's so urgent, what it really means, and how to make it happen faster. We'll be drawing in part from Race in the Workplace, a new report co-authored by Brian and other McKinsey leaders. Here's some of what they found. Bright spots are tough to find. When we look at actual signs of progress, there's definitely a ways to go. We are seeing promotions of women, promotions of people of color. Once you hit the managerial ranks, once you hit the officer ranks, you are seeing folks being promoted more that will, over time, create more proportional representation and management. The challenge, if you take, for example, with uh, Black employees, is that that journey is going to take 95 years on the current course and speed. So while we are paying attention to the issues, there is something about the scale of the solution that's not yet matching the scale of the problem. Stick with us. More coming up. Brian, Bill, welcome back. It's great to be back. Good to be with you. Good to have you. Let's start with some context. Over the past year, we've seen many leaders galvanized to make new commitments to fostering more diverse, more equitable, and more inclusive workplaces in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, and of course also the killing of George Floyd and consequent global outrage. At the same time, leaders have been talking about improving representation for women and for minority demographics at work for what feels like such a painfully long time. Bill, do you think things will actually be different this time? The good news is there does appear to be a meaningful sea shift in the amount of attention and problem-solving effort and real commitment and investment to doing better. So the mere idea that we're focusing on what kind of environment are we creating isn't inclusive. Are we really accepting of all kinds of people? Are we allowing people to bring their whole selves to work? That's a huge step forward. On the equity front, are we being much, much more thoughtful about opportunities throughout the funnel, all the way upstream in terms of where we source for talent, the skills we're demanding through to the promotions and development opportunities all the way through the life cycle. That's the good news. The bad news is that COVID is, ha, runs the potential of wiping out six years of advances on the uh, diverse workforce front. And that is just devastating. And primarily it's because COVID has disproportionately impacted sectors that are really concentrated with women and people of color. So we're probably digging out of a hole because of the nature of the way we've had concentrations of women and people of color in sectors that have taken a real pounding because of the uh, pandemic. What have we learned about where companies have made progress, Brian? Bright spots are tough to find. When we look at actual signs of progress, there's definitely a ways to go. We are seeing promotions of women, promotions of people of color. Once you hit the managerial ranks, once you hit the officer ranks, you are seeing folks being promoted more that will, over time, create more proportional representation and management. The challenge, if you take, for example, with uh, Black employees, is that that journey is going to take 95 years on the current course and speed. So while we are paying attention to the issues, there is something about the scale of the solution that's not yet matching the scale of the problem. 
We know that the number of female CEOs in the Fortune 500 is abysmal, and the number of black CEOs is even worse. What about boards of directors? Several U.S. states have passed regulation about board diversity in recent years. I'm thinking of women on boards, which is the gender diversity law that was enacted in California a couple years back. Are we seeing progress there? And why isn't this having a more positive impact on employee numbers and movement through the pipeline, if so? And we are seeing board representation coming up, but boards have a governance, not a management role. And so as you're a uh, potential recruit thinking through, is this company a place for me? You may look at the board and say, is there representation there? But you may also look at, well, who's the vice president in the group I'm going to be in? And who's the senior vice president? And are there any people that look like me in that entire chain? We need to have the representation leadership, the clear signals that, hey, there are places for people like you here. Because if it's just at the board level, yes, that sends a good signal, but I don't think it has the day-to-day impact. So let's talk specifically about the challenges that leaders face within the talent life cycle. And let's take, just to start, talent acquisition. What are some of the barriers to entry that women and diverse populations face in being recruited into jobs? When we think about sourcing, I think it's an interesting point to say there's a real difference between equal and equitable. Think if you just said all interns are created equal. We pay them nothing. Well, that's interesting. It's worth pointing out the idea that the people who can most afford to take an entire summer off Mm -hmm. and not get paid are likely already coming from a position of privilege. I mean, I reflect on my own experience in undergraduate, particularly after my father had died. The thought of summering between my junior and senior year or one year after and working for nothing, it was a non-option because I needed to make money. Don't curtail the funnel out of the gate just because of the convention of what you've already done. It's, well, it's equal. Probably not equitable. You could be foregoing amazing talent just by how you look, where you look, and what you engage them with. And so for me... I feel like this is an early opportunity to rewrite some of the rules because the grand equalizer is no one can see anyone face-to-face anyway. AI very famously risks integrating human bias into its algorithms. And we know that recruiters are relying more and more on automation for screening and assessment and so forth. Do you think technology helps or hurts in the diversity area in the assessment process? I think good technology helps. Good technology that's based on the underlying science of assessments that really looks at what are we assessing for that is then tying that to a job and tying that to what's going to link to success of an individual in a job. The challenge we have is when we then start to look at other forms of an assessment, other forms of saying, how does this candidate fit against the norms of this group? How does this candidate look against how other people have succeeded? In those cases, if the group they're comparing against is a largely white, largely male group, I think we do have to pause and say, hey, are we incorporating bias in those selections? There are two different ways that AI can be used. One is building on the science to help refine and get deeper insights. And the other is comparing against an existing population. And I'd be more cautious on the latter. 
So look, you can use good quantitative techniques as a way of managing incredibly large data sets. In the first instance, sometimes you can just use it as a rough screening tool. I wouldn't go down the road of meaningful and thoughtful prediction of success until you are really, really, really thoughtful on validation. Mm -hmm. And that requires you to do a couple things really different. You should be challenging and challenging aggressively all of your assumptions around what knowledge, skills, attributes, and experiences are required and really differentiate performance. You should be far more thoughtful about adjacencies, particularly adjacencies and experience, knowledge, and skills. You should be far more rigorous on understanding what kinds of people, their attributes, are required for success as opposed to you just like. In many cases, we screen based on things we prefer for us, not what's actually predictive of success. And then there's just good old-fashioned validation, which is you need to run it concurrent for a while. You need to run it in parallel. You need to have an adequate amount of performance data. You need to really track what happened to the people you didn't pick. And then you can feel far, far more certain that what you're doing actually makes sense and doesn't sort of institutionalized bias just because of the way your models are built. What about assessment tools like gamification? How does bias take effect there? I think it depends on the nature of the game. If the game is based off of a science-based assessment and what you're doing is you're substituting a game for maybe a pencil and paper or a pen and paper assessment, and the game has been validated against those more traditional forms of assessment and has been validated for the outcomes, the game's great. It's a different, more engaging way of getting at some of the same underlying attributes that we're trying to test for. I think there are games that aspire to be more and do more. In those contexts, we have to be very clear on what we're looking for the game to solve, be very clear on how we're testing for uh, different biases and being very clear on how the game is one of multiple uh, inputs into the process. So I'm hopeful. I mean, I think gamification can be an engaging way of getting a lot more data about individual candidates, but it's one where we need to proceed with caution. We're talking about tools and processes. But what about examples of how leaders are monitoring for just subjective unconscious bias that might manifest in the recruiting process? How do leaders address those kinds of subjective bias that routinely creep into even the most well-intentioned recruitment and talent acquisition processes? Well, one is calling it out. Language is a great early indicator that there's something going on that's at least worth looking at. I mean, when we set those things up, even in our own review rooms, mm-hmm. where when someone says, well, you know, what about their presence? You just jump all over that because it's a classic one. Mm-hmm. More subtle, but maybe more pervasive, is underlying assumptions that we make around what do people need to know? What skills do they have to have? What sort of attributes that make them successful? And there, I think you just have to be brutal about saying, is there any evidence to suggest that this actually differentiates? between good performers and not. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't differentiate, it has no business being in the conversation, period. A lot of what we've been talking about in talent acquisition is about the science of assessment and making sure that it really matters objectively to job performance. A lot of companies are actively thinking about this. You see this in unconscious bias training. You see it in the structure of assessments. You see it in the assessment teams that big companies are rolling out. And importantly, you see it in the data. In our 
race and the workplace research, we looked at what representation was, focusing on black employees, but looking at representation at entry-level corporate jobs. And for black employees, the entry-level was at parity with the black population more broadly. The challenge came in, hey, how do you take that same rigor that we've got at the very beginning of the pipeline and at the officer rank, and how do we do that for the promotion to the first level? How do we do that for more active talent scouting? And that, to me, is where the bigger opportunity is. We have to stay vigilant on assessments for the front line and assessments for the entry level. But to me, the opportunity is really how do we think more rigorously about how to embrace the entry level folks and be very uh, deliberate in advancement. Yeah, that's a huge point. And that's a very commonly voiced challenge that women or people of color exit companies prior to ascending in the ranks. So suppose you've got a relatively diverse population at that front end of the pipeline, but you're losing them. What's going on there? What do you do? This is where you think about not just diversity, um, but equity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. And when we're thinking about inclusion in particular, you know, what is the environment that we have for women? What is the environment we have for people of color? Are we creating the right communities for those folks? Are we also creating the right supporting mechanisms? Are we welcoming? Are we having the conversations openly about what it takes to succeed? Are we giving good feedback consistently? Are we being good sponsors? All of those things together help advance people in the organization, and we know there are gaps today. So let me pick sponsorship. 87% of the companies that we surveyed said they had some form of sponsorship program. But fewer than half of people across races said that they had a sponsor. Fewer than half. So there's clearly a disconnect between what is a well-intended program, meaning to connect people to opportunity and help them grow in their careers, and people feeling that. And one of the things we need to do is close that disconnect. So let's just take a step back. You're talking about inclusion. I will admit that as a woman, I sling that term around with abandon and authority, but I'm not sure I could define it precisely. What are we really talking about when we talk about an inclusive environment? We've been spending a bunch of time studying this, trying to come up with a better way of talking about it trying to understand the levels at which people experience the idea of inclusion. What influences it the most? I'll give you what I think sort of captures it. Acceptance, an experience of trust, intimacy, belonging, affinity, even to some extent the idea that you have influence or agency. Those things all wrap in together. If you were to try to get a little more precise, most people can characterize it on two levels. Their own felt experience, what they themselves directly have experienced, and whether or not they perceive the organization, the broad environment they're in, to be broadly inclusive. They say, okay, well, what might explain differences between those two? And this is completely aligned with classic organizational psychology. The relationship with the boss, the relationship with peers, and then the experience of policies, practices, and rules that the company both writes and then actually enforces. And so when we talk to people about creating an inclusive environment, we're really saying you've got three levers to pull, how the boss behaves, how the teammates behave, and then the formal mechanisms that you use. 
right, in the organization. We've tested that both within McKinsey, within clients, really high-profile clients who've come and said, hey, we have a problem. We'd like to work on this, as well as just people on the street, because we were trying to sort of prove out the does it hold up across broad walks of life. And it seems to. What's notable here is for many things at work, the relationship with the boss is the single most important relationship. It would appear that when we're talking about an inclusive environment, the behavior of your colleagues matters as much, if not a bit more, than the behavior of the boss. So it doesn't mean bosses get a pass and they can be difficult, but the more collaborative we work and the more we talk about agile and the more we talk about teams, it stands to reason there's just more opportunities to have these interactions that make it feel inclusive or not. And so we think there's a whole new tranche of ideas for organizations that it's made or broken based on the team and the team environment. And can you give an example of an idea that uh, we could individually impart to support inclusivity on our teams? And here it might be helpful to acknowledge that one of us on this podcast is a woman, but all of us are white. And so we would be positioned to act as allies to, for example, underrepresented minority colleagues. I think what you've got to do, particularly as a white male leader, is be vulnerable and recognize you don't know exactly how to have the conversation and that you might not say the exact right thing, but also be curious. Like, hey, how can we help? How can we make this a more inclusive environment? What can we be doing better? And create the space for the conversation. And I think the act of doing that and the act of being a curious learner and having that mindset can go a long way towards starting the kind of conversation that we need to have on um, what some of the underlying pieces might actually be. Do you think that we risk placing an undue burden on colleagues from more diverse demographics when we ask them to educate us about the experience that they have in the workplace? Let me answer that question on two levels. One, on the corporate level, it absolutely can be a burden for the companies to then say, hey, tell us what we need to do. We want to learn and create a bunch of additional tasks and burdens when a lot of it the companies can figure out on their own. Companies should have a combination of being open to uh, getting feedback and input uh, and making sure that they're being extremely thoughtful and inclusive in doing it, but not at every turn saying, but what do you think? You come up with the idea. It's a little different on the team level saying, hey, is anything I'm doing bugging you? Mm -hmm. Is there something we should be doing different? Hey, I noticed that you know, you've got this responsibility outside of work or you've got these other things. How are you doing and how can we help? That's a different level of very personal conversation that's not at the abstract, what can we be doing to advance all women in the company? But a very personal level, what can we be doing to help support you? And I think a lot of the allyship and support is having those kinds of conversations and putting some of the experiential elephants on the table, putting some of the whole life, whole person things, having those conversations at a personal level, I think those kinds of conversations help drive an inclusive environment and aren't seen as an additional burden. Bill, anything to add there? I was just on a call with a team and we were talking about training on this front. And it struck me 
that the majority in organizations in many cases are still uh, white men and usually straight white men. How interesting is it that the majority, the people that you need to change the environment are often the ones least likely to see the need to go to one of these trainings? Can we construct an environment where it's acceptable to raise your hand and say, I'm a middle-aged white guy. I have no firsthand experience of the kind of things we're talking about here. But I sure know and feel the right thing to do is to try to be an ally, not just say, I don't do that, to actively try to make things better. And I can do things like inviting people into meetings they wouldn't normally be at. I could do things to change up our routines just because that's how we always did it, even if it wasn't particularly thoughtful about new people into the group. I can go out of my way to make sure that I, I pull people into conversations and decision-making for input. I can do all those things. And it just feels to me like a big portion of this is that getting the majority to see the ease with which they can step into a place of allyship, that might be a really nice unlock, right? So it's not we, the they. It's actually just we. And we, we have an opportunity to do way better. How do you see the role of affinity groups in supporting the experience of diverse employees? Affinity groups or ERGs, employee resource groups, have been shown to be very effective at building community and creating the connectivity and the sense of belonging, sense of seeing other people like you and hearing some of the stories of what make them successful. What affinity groups have had less of a proven effective being is an avenue towards promotion. And so we still need to have other things in place to help really advance women, to really advance people of color. We need to have sponsorship in place in a more real way. We need to have other support mechanisms. We can't put it all to the affinity group to solve. The data shows us that career mobility can be a challenge for women and for diverse workers. And we also know many organizations take pride in narrating themselves as meritocracies and sometimes perceive the notion of actively creating opportunities for more diverse talent as in tension with meritocratic principles. So, uh, Brian, I'm interested in what the data in the Race in the Workplace report told us about whether Black workers perceive career mobility as meritocratic. In our Race in the Workplace uh, data, we found that no one perceives the <laughs> workplace to be meritocratic. The majority of white workers and the majority of black workers did not perceive current process to be meritocratic. And when you take a look at our broader performance management research, it's really not that much of a surprise. The majority of people don't feel like their contributions are recognized fairly at work. They're not having regular conversations with their manager, their supervisor on how they're doing and what it is, so that we see it in the data isn't that much of a surprise. Rather than keep reinforcing, hey, there's a tension between meritocracy and advancement, I think we need to look at what the fundamental tenets of what a fair meritocracy would be and really make sure that we're having the conversation on goals, that we're having the feedback conversations, that we're linking what somebody is doing today to the business performance and having conversations on that level. Because if we did, we would raise the perception of what fairness is. And we're also probably going to identify the folks that really do have the merit to advance. Yeah. At the same time, 
that zero-sum notion, it's pretty deeply embedded in American discourse, at least about gender and diversity and wealth, right? Meaning, in other words, that the benefits that an inclusive culture might confer are going to get refracted through a prism of competition so that one person's advantage is always counterweighed by another person's loss. There's a, like a great new book on this by Heather McGee called The Sum of Us, where she debunks zero sum and sets out to prove the opposite, which I think she calls the solidarity dividend. But what, what does our research say about zero sum and the benefits of diversity overall? Because that might help leaders navigate that tension a little better. There's great research and a great thinking from PolicyLink uh, that describes the curb cut effect. And I think it is a great analogy for what we're talking about of how this doesn't have to be zero-sum, how addressing things like the perception of meritocracy can actually benefit all workers. The curb cut effect, it comes from the American with Disabilities Act when it was required that you had to have cuts in curbs so people in wheelchairs could more easily cross the street. And as we think about who uses the curb cuts, yes, people in wheelchairs use them, but so do business people with their rolling suitcases. So do parents with kids in their strollers. Lots of people have come to use the curb cuts well beyond people in wheelchairs. Mm -hmm. By focusing on some of these meritocracy concerns, you can actually address what is an underlying dissatisfier for a wide range of people. So I would encourage us to shift the lens from that of zero sum. If this person gets promoted, then this person won't. If we created a system where everybody perceives as more fair, won't everybody be more engaged in their work? And won't everybody be more focused on the exact contributions they need to make, the exact skills they need to build to advance the companies and to advance themselves. Part of what we're saying is that inclusive environments enable better retention, better employee engagement. Is there data to show that inclusive environments also enable performance? Yeah, it's pretty well known that when you create an environment in particular, where you make it easy for people to bring all of their skills and all of their thoughtfulness to innovation and to problem solving, they just do better. It builds up social exchange. It builds up goodwill. It's a, a really virtuous cycle, as opposed to finding out after the meeting happened, being excluded, having your background, your experiences, and your ideas discounted. That's a vicious cycle, right? So this mm -hmm. no doubt has a direct, direct impact. If we think about COVID as having posed some risks to accelerating progress on these priorities, besides illuminating the exigency of taking action, what kind of opportunities specifically has the pandemic given rise to for leaders to cultivate greater diversity and inclusion in their workforce? Can you give us an example of that, Brian? Sure. And one of the things that COVID has done is it's allowed people to learn how to work remotely and allowed organizations to learn how to embrace remote work more generally. 
Why does that matter for diversity, equity, and inclusion from a diversity standpoint? In particular, if you look at the black population across the United States, it's not equally distributed. Fewer than one in 10 black workers are in the fastest growing geographies, places like Provo, Utah, or Austin, Texas. And companies in some of those geographies think about where they might want to uh, tap into the workforce. The ability to more easily use remote work the ability to think about hubs outside of the headquarters location, now companies can say, hey, if I'm setting up an East Coast hub, can I set it in a place like Atlanta, where there is a black population that is qualified to do the work, where there are great HBCUs that can provide a talent pipeline. So if you're setting up two hubs, three hubs, six hubs across the country, companies are now seeing the opportunity to set up a hub in a historically black neighborhood, setting up hubs in areas where they can deliberately tap into some more diverse talent. Yeah, tech, for example, has gotten a lot of media attention for lacking diversity, right? And the tech workforce tends to be super concentrated in areas like New York and California and Route 128 in Mass. It'll be interesting to see how that evolves. You know, one of the things that's really interesting about the way we have concentrated in these hubs, these tech hubs, whether it's Silicon Valley or up outside of Boston or down in the Triangle in Carolina or even Austin or maybe to a lesser extent Denver, maybe even seeing a little bit in Pittsburgh, what's the common denominator? Usually one, at least one, if not more, really prestigious schools, incredible STEM schools, amazing engineering departments, math departments. What's the other common denominator? In many cases, the concentration of talent in those schools is exactly more of what we already have. And so there is just such an unbelievable self-fulfilling prophecy here, unless we can break the cycle of investing in, doing deals with, and hiring only from the same places. So when we actually look at the data, we should be embarrassed. And I think we're finally in the world where we don't have to ask, we just demand and expect and hold people to account for not. So what is your view on how companies should track their progress and hold themselves responsible from a data perspective. You know, most things get a little clearer when you track it and make it public. You know, when you do a state and aspiration or, you know, a a goal, you figure out the metric you're going to use to measure it, you set a target, and then you make it really transparent whether or not you're doing it. That normally has a way of clarifying mind and effort. What I would say is saying to the world you want to do better, okay, Saying what better might look like, okay, that's a step in the right direction. By when, even better. You know, it's still not enough though, right? Because almost anybody can come up with a reason why it's not their fault that they missed. That's why I think the broader range of actions to make, you know, to really address DE and I, really be thoughtful about sources, really be thoughtful about who's getting access to the opportunities, really being thoughtful about once people arrive, how you give them more than a fighting chance to thrive in that environment, not just survive it. You know, diversity from a numeric standpoint ends up becoming an outcome of those actions. So, hey, counting it shows people that you're serious. It's all the stuff that you have to do to make it stick, I think, is what really matters. And we'll have the enduring annuity. Mm -hmm. Okay, one more. The pandemic has obviously posed a really destabilizing threat to a lot of companies. Some companies are fighting for survival and have to prioritize, for example, revenue recovery. 
So what do you say to leaders about the need to prioritize DNI even as they're making budget cuts elsewhere in their businesses? I mean, to me, that's a question of well, how do you tell business leaders to prioritize worker safety while they're making budget cut in their businesses? How do you encourage business leaders to think about their customers as they're making cuts to other parts of their business? It doesn't have to be at the expense of the mission or the financial outcomes of the business. DEI is good business. And I think our Diversity Matters research shows it. Lots of other research show it. So I don't think this is one where, hey, we can't do diversity right now because we're under a lot of pressure. Diversity is one of the things that you've got to do and be mindful of in every context, especially now. Great. Let's close there. As always, guys, that was a great discussion. Look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thanks so much. Really, really appreciate it. I'm really glad we took the time to talk about it. Yeah, grateful for your time. Thanks, guys. That was Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger. For more, subscribe to us on your favorite audio player or visit mckinsey.com. And if you have questions for Brian and Bill, write to us at McKinseyTalksTalent at McKinsey.com. We'd love to hear from you. Be well. <laughs>